Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm very pleased to have back with us a Dr. Christopher Clapham to discuss Ethiopia, its new quest for sea access, and how that is unsettling the region. We also discuss the internal situation in Ethiopia itself. Dr. Clapham has been closely following and writing on Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa region for many decades. He's a distinguished scholar based at the Center for African Studies at Cambridge University. Dr. Clapham, thanks for joining us and welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So last year, and and really the beginning of this year, we've had a bit of a quake in the Horn of Africa region, especially regarding Ethiopia vis-a-vis its neighbors. Now, last time we had you on the show, we very much focused on Ethiopia's internal situation. This time we're going to start off by zooming out on the regional situation. Last year, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed made clear that it would be a major goal of his and the Ethiopian state to restore access restore sea access for Ethiopia. Um, What's the historical and regional context for this major new push? Yes, of course. Ethiopia is very conscious of being the most highly populated landlocked state in the world. It was thought back in the early 1950s that Ethiopia had cracked that problem once the United Nations had voted to federate the former Italian colony of Eritrea with the Ethiopian Empire, then under Emperor Haile Selassie. But that arrangement fell through spectacularly with the starting of the Eritrean War of Independence, dated to the early 1960s, carrying on for 30 years until, in 1991, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front decisively conquered the whole of the territory of Eritrea and declared it an independent state. Initially, there was a plan that this Eritrean independence would be combined with um, guaranteed access to the sea for Ethiopia, which was cut off from the Red Sea by a long, thin strip of Eritrean territory. But that fell through once Eritrea and Ethiopia went to war over a minor territorial dispute in 1998. And that dispute was not really resolved until Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018 and agreed to the settlement for the border between Ethiopia and Eritrea that had been recommended by the group of international lawyers set up for the purpose. Even then, the process of access to the sea for Ethiopia was not really resolved. Relations between the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments remained very variable, sometimes more friendly, sometimes less, but always potentially dangerous. And so the question of Ethiopia's access to the sea came up once again. Now, that then coincided with the emergence of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed in um, 2018, who has made it very much part of his personal quest to restore Ethiopia's access to the sea. Now, that was the long-term basis of it, and there were two alternatives apart from the port of Djibouti, which is a separate independent state, which serves as by far the most important Ethiopian access point for its imports and exports but where the government there has become less friendly, if you like, towards Ethiopia. It has become a player very much in the fraught maritime relations of the Red Sea, um, which have recently been very much in the news with the Yemeni groups firing on merchant shipping in the Red Sea. 
So that left the Ethiopian government looking for alternatives to Djibouti. When he first brought it up in the new year, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed referred to the Ethiopian demand for a port on the Red Sea. Now, that Red Sea was critical because there was only one possible port on the Red Sea, which was and is the port of Asab, at the very, very southern tip of the Red Sea, that was part of Eritrean territory. And the Eritreans have been extremely sensitive about any issue of territoriality, and effectively that could only have been achieved as a result of a war between Ethiopia and Eritrea in a part of the world that has become all too used to wars. So, shortly afterwards, Abiy Ahmed decided on a different tack, with the self-declared independent Republic of Somaliland, the former British Somaliland, which split off from the former Italian Somalia in 1991, and for over 30 years has been an effectively independent, self-governing state, which remains nonetheless completely unrecognised by any other state in the world. So, the Ethiopians were looking for a port with access to, in this case, the Gulf of Aden, and through that to the Red Sea. The Somalilanders were looking for international recognition, and so it was a very obvious deal that Somaliland would give Ethiopia guaranteed access to the port of Berbera, which has recently gone, uh, undergone a significant updating and modernization program to turn it into a viable container port. And in return, Ethiopia would recognize the Republic of Somaliland as a separate sovereign independent state. So that's the basics of the issue as it has arisen, but it has been very much complicated by the personal governing style of Prime Minister Abiy, who has been very apt to take very public stands on issues without really consulting their domestic, political or still more international diplomatic implications. The African Union has stuck very clearly to the, its commitment to the maintenance of the boundaries inherited at national independence from colonial rule and has been strongly opposed to any division of former colonial states into separate independent units that was not approved of by the state from which the division was taking place. So the independence of Eritrea was agreed by the government of Ethiopia in Addis Ababa. The independence of South Sudan was agreed by the government in Khartoum. But the independence of Somaliland was not agreed by the government in Mogadishu. And that is where the international legal and diplomatic situation rests. The Somalilanders do actually have a pretty valid claim that they were themselves an independent state because they became independent from British Somalia, Somaliland, with decolonization, and then voluntarily agreed to unite with former Italian Somalia. Um, and what their, their claim is that they are withdrawing the agreement that they made voluntarily and which they claim to have the right to rescind voluntarily. But nonetheless, 
In African diplomatic terms, this is still identified as the unauthorised division of an existing African state, the United Republic of Somalia. And so, when Abiy announced this very much single-handedly, this aroused considerable concern from many of um, Ethiopia's and Somaliland's neighbours in Eritrea, in Kenya, in Djibouti, and more widely in the African Union as a whole. So, so as you say there, no matter which way Abi turns for this sea access quest, um, it does look quite problematic. Do you think, generally speaking, in a broader sense, we should be viewing this as marking something of a new era in terms of regional stability, regional relations, one that potentially pits Ethiopia uh, seemingly against many of its neighbors? Well, the Horn of Africa is a perennially unstable region, all the way back to the moment of Somali independence in 1960, when the Somalis were the only ethnic group in the whole of Africa that rejected the colonial partition of the continent and demanded unification with other Somalis, whether they were in ex-Italian Somalia, ex-British Somaliland, the Ethiopian region, often known as the Ogaden, the Republic of Djibouti, and a very large area of northeastern Kenya. Back in the Cold War days, this regional rivalry took a clearly Cold War form. Firstly, the United States supported Ethiopia, and so the Somali um, Republic looked to support from the Soviet Union. After the Ethiopian Revolution in 1974, the Ethiopian government then switched to the Soviet Union, and the various regional movements opposed to it, especially in the north of the country, um, looked for allies elsewhere. So it has been a perennially fraught region, and this latest démarche has, if you like, simply extended that long history of struggle into one in which, this, in which all of the regional states and some non-regional states are necessarily involved. Kenya, for instance, has historically been an ally of Ethiopia, because both the Kenyans and the Ethiopians had large Somali ethnic populations, and they, both of them wanted to cling on to the territory occupied by those people against the Somali claims for ethnic unity. The port of Djibouti has become by far the most important port for imports and exports from and to Ethiopia, with over 90% of Ethiopia's international trade going through Djibouti, and so if Ethiopia were to gain its own port, um, such as Berbera, or indeed Asab, this would cut out the Djiboutian port of Djibouti city itself. So the Djiboutians would be concerned about this because the Djiboutian economy relies to a significant extent on transit trade with Ethiopia. The Eritreans, with their perennially fraught relationship with Ethiopia, have been very sceptical about any independence movement in the region, apart from their own, and so their instinct would be to side with Djibouti, with which they've had very difficult relations themselves, rather than with Ethiopia. The Somali government in Mogadishu, which remains essentially propped up by international peacekeeping forces, though peacekeeping is often not quite the word you'd use for it, 
they would see the recognition of Somaliland independence as a breach in their own territorial integrity. So this demarche by Abiy Ahmed brings back onto the conflict agenda a whole lot of issues which have always been underlying the regional politics of the Horn of Africa, but which have gone through much quieter periods as well as much more conflictual ones. Ethiopia, of course, is the is, you know is the regional giant. So I I guess what I'm asking is for its smaller neighbors, uh, surely this new rhetoric from Ethiopia comes across as especially ominous given those power dynamics, um, and and there is a deep history here. Yes, that suggestion is absolutely right, and the changes of government in Ethiopia have also had a significant effect on Ethiopia's relationships with its neighbours during the period in power of the government that took over in 1991, led initially by Melis Zenawi and subsequently by Hadamariam Deseleng, the emphasis was very much on the Horn of Africa as a region of shared economic development built around the dominant position, which you quite rightly point to, of Ethiopia as the big state in the region with a population that dwarfs any of the others, as a state which stands to gain from friendly relations with all of its neighbours. And this all added up to what was called the Ethiopian Developmental State, the flagship project of which was the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam on the border between Ethiopia and Sudan as a source of hydroelectric power for every all of the states in the region. But that project was already in some problems on economic grounds. Ethiopia had borrowed a lot of money that it was scarcely in a position to repay. But what really upset things was the Abiy Ahmed takeover, which marked a very decisive shift in the regional power basis within Ethiopia, which had knock-on effects for Ethiopia's relationships with its neighbours. This is not a self-contained region, as the issues of um, the Arabian Peninsula have made very clear. The other side of the Red Sea from Ethiopia and Eritrea is Saudi Arabia, Yemen, which have been deeply involved in their own civil war in Yemen, and the Saudis in particular taking sides in that war. The United Arab Emirates, although geographically separated from the Red Sea, have also become very active players in the region, not least because they've got a lot of money to spare. Great world powers have on the whole tried to keep reasonably clear, but Turkey has taken up a very active role in the region, in particular in support of the Somalia government in Mogadishu, and the upheavals in the Middle East are likewise forcing states in the region to come down on one side or the other. So this is a conflict which definitely has the potential to extend more generally through northeast Africa and into the Arab world across the Red Sea. And how seriously do you take Abiy's claim to not only want a seaport for commerce for Ethiopia, but, but also to service an Ethiopian navy? Yes, Ethiopia never had a navy until after 1952, when Eritrea was federated with Ethiopia, and they then set up a small one with patrol boats on the Red Sea. And Abiy is clearly looking for a revival of that arrangement, in which, under the new system, 
or under the Memorandum of Understanding, would be based in the Somaliland port of Babara. It's difficult to envisage Ethiopia as being a significant naval power in the region. There are other states far more committed to naval power than the Ethiopians. I would see it largely as an expression of sovereignty, um, simply advertising that Ethiopia is back on the block, as it were. But certainly that arrangement has been built into the Memorandum of Understanding and therefore accepted by the Somalilanders as well as by the Ethiopians and providing a further source of concern for the Eritreans and other groups, the Djiboutians, other groups with interests in navigation on the Red Sea. Now, as you mentioned, the obvious alternative to the Somaliland deal is the port of Asab in Eritrea. And just a few months ago, when Abi really made this public push for sea access, the initial consequence was to really ratchet up tensions between Eritrea and Ethiopia, uh, which were already ratcheting up anyways. Um, This deal in Somaliland could, of course, fall through, perhaps maybe likely would fall through at some point. But even if it didn't fall through, these tensions between Ethiopia and Eritrea are obviously also very concerning to many in the region, many Ethiopians, many Eritreans, many others, outsiders. How worried are you about the direction of the relationships between Addis Ababa and Asmara, um, and and the prospect for yet another catastrophic war between these two countries uh, somewhere down the line? You always have to be worried in this region about the possibility of a catastrophic war. It is a region that has seen one after another, and... Most recently, of course, the war in Tigray, in which Abiy sought an entirely opportunistic alliance, as it's now very clear, with the government in Eritrea, because he was not confident that the Ethiopian armed forces under his control would be sufficient to defeat the actually very experienced leadership of the Tigrayan regional forces. And the outcome of the civil war showed that he was absolutely right about that. The Eritreans came in. They were particularly noted for looting territory in Tigray. But the moment that the war in Tigray was over, Abiy's calculations changed. For a start, the basic strategic goals of the Eritrean government of Isaias Afewelki in Asmara and the Ethiopian government of Abiy in Ethiopia were and remain completely contradictory. Abiy, having become ruler of Ethiopia, was looking to unite Ethiopia into a single powerful state, overcoming its tendencies to proliferation and regional conflict. From an Eritrean point of view, on the other hand, what Eritreans have been looking for has been essentially to encourage divisions within Ethiopia, because for an independent Eritrea, having a much larger, more powerful, former ruling state on their frontier, was potentially very hazardous indeed. And no sooner was the war with Tigray over than Abiy started to look for the possibility of disciplining the Eritreans and, in the process, switching alliances completely to an alliance with the Tigrayans. Tigray occupies almost all, or by far the greater part, of the frontier region between Eritrea and Ethiopia, 
so any war between Eritrea and Ethiopia would took, take place the way they always have done, to a large extent in Tigray, and that presented the threat of precisely, as you suggested, a reversion to yet another war in a region that has seen far too many of them. So I think that's a good pivot to the internal situation in Ethiopia, which you've already touched on. Last time we had you on, it was in the middle of Ethiopia's devastating civil war, um, primarily pitting Addis Ababa against the Tigray region. A lot has obviously happened since then. The war has ended. The peace process itself is still messy. Um, the war in Oromia, however, continues, even though at least now there are peace talks and this new conflict has erupted in the Amhara region. I know you've been able to do some travel within Ethiopia recently. Uh, I'm wondering what are your takeaways, first of all, on the overall situation facing Ethiopia right now? Yes, I'd have to say the situation looks very worrying indeed to me. And the real problems in that situation are not so much Tigray, which is settling down essentially under the government of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which fought the war against the government in Addis Ababa. And the generals who commanded the Tigrayan armed forces against the government in Addis Ababa are still commanding the Tigrayan regional army, or technically special police force, that they commanded in the war. Talking to some of the leading generals in the Tigrayan forces, they were still referring to the central government in Addis Ababa as the enemy. They were also very clear indeed that they did not want another war. Um, Tigray suffered very badly indeed as a result of the war that um, ended nearly two years ago. And the costs for its population were very appalling. The one area in which a war could break out in Tigray concerns the area commonly known as Western Tigray, down towards the border with the Republic of Sudan, which has historically been inhabited by Tigrinya-speaking peoples, Tigrayans in a word, but which has been claimed by the opposition groups in the Amhara region, who have come together to form what is sometimes referred to as Fano Militia, but which that does not appear to be a single unified con centrally controlled force, but rather a series of local militia forces without any effective chain of command of their own. So a war between Tigray and Amhara over the Western Tigray issue um, is certainly very, very much on the cards. So equally would be an attempt by the central government to bring Amhara region under firmer central government control. Um, much of that region now appears to be um, effectively closed off to government operators and forces. When I was in Ethiopia just a couple of months ago, I hoped to visit that region, but was told that on security grounds it was simply out of the question. I was equally unable to visit Oromia, which again has had a whole series of localised conflicts and disputes. So what we're looking at on the grander scale is effectively a shrinkage in the control exercised by the central government in Addis Ababa to the advantage of still rather inchoate, undisciplined forces in several of the country's major regions. And Oromia as the biggest of them, and Amhara as the second biggest, between them add up to over 60% of the total population of Ethiopia. 
Meanwhile, the central government has been very much concerned with various prestige projects, you might call them, in the immediate Addis Ababa region, including the creation of various public parks in Addis Ababa, the building of a grand new prime ministerial residence on the mountain just to the north of Addis Ababa, which on the one hand provides the most obvious prestige projects being pursued by the government, but on the other hand gives the impression of a government whose authority is shrinking back into the central area around Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa looks very much like a bubble where life goes on as normal in increasingly sharp contrast to many of the regional governments which remain potentially very unstable, even violent. From what you're describing, do you see any useful historic parallels to this moment in Ethiopia? The obvious parallel that comes to mind um, at the moment is with what was referred to as the Gondarain monarchy, the imperial government based in the city of Gondar, just north of Lake Tana in the north of the country, where the emperor ruled and where successive emperors built their own palaces, being echoed by um, Abbey's building of his palace um, on the outskirts of Addis Ababa, while its control over the hinterland steadily shrunk away. And one gets rather the same impression looking at Ethiopia today as Ethiopian politics becomes increasingly regionalised and as it becomes increasingly clear that a political settlement can only be bought at the cost of significant autonomy at any rate for the country's major regions. That era in past Ethiopian history went on for maybe well over 150 years, sometimes referred to as the era of the princes or in Amharic as the Zemana Musafant, um, until it was ultimately ended in 1855 when a strong emperor, Tewadros, proved to be militarily in a position to defeat all of the regional lords and start the process of reunifying Ethiopia, a process that ended just in time for Tewadros's successor, the Emperor Menelik, to secure Ethiopia's independence with his victory over the Italians at the Battle of Adwa in 1896. So, looking back, yes, Ethiopian history over many centuries has had periods of greater central government control and periods of relative fragmentation or regionalization. At the end of each of those periods of regionalization, the main central state has come back into being again, and Ethiopia does have a very strong sense of statehood, of history, of identity, a special position as Africa's only uncolonized state. My faith would be ultimately that Ethiopia's unity will be retained. I can't see any basis for a stable system replacing it, but it could be a long and rocky road to get there. So I'd say there's really two dominant schools of thought about the situation in Ethiopia at the moment. One is that despite this proliferation of crises, including armed conflict, that Abiy himself at the center of this is essentially unthreatened in Addis Ababa, even if the central government is losing more control of parts of the country. And of course, the competing narrative that especially 
uh, opponents of Abi would like to believe is true is that all of this does risk eventually spinning out of control for him. Where do you fall between those th- those two different narratives? I would see it as very dangerous. Now, having said that, you never know when a decisive break in the system will occur. Those of us who were in Ethiopia in the time, the declining years of the old emperor Haile Selassie, could see that there was a crisis looming. None of us, I think, really predicted exactly what form it would take or when, in particular, it would occur. Abi is not immediately threatened in personal terms, but nonetheless, his style of government is idiosyncratic. He appears to operate on a very short-term basis, that he would, should switch from looking for a port on the Red Sea to looking for a port on the Gulf of Aden within weeks, Um, is an indication of the way he flip-flops back and forth between different options. The alliances that he reaches have been very much tactical ones, serving his purpose for the moment. If you look for any real centre of support for Abiy, it is becoming increasingly difficult to discern. When he came in back in 2018, he was all things for all men, and there was a euphoric period when it looked as though Abiy would be the solution to all of Ethiopia's problems, but that was always over-optimistic, just because many of Ethiopia's problems are much too basic to be resolved by a single leader, no matter how able. But Abiy has proved to be a very idiosyncratic leader, and in making tactical alliances, say with the Eritreans against the Tigrayans, then looking for another one with the Tigrayans against the Eritreans, What you lose along the way is trust. You can't form long-standing alliances in that way of the kind that you need to maintain a stable government and political structure in Ethiopia. So I'm very worried. Things could break apart, and in this part of the world, when they do, it can be very violent. But exactly how and when is something that no one, so far as I'm aware, is in a position to predict. So I think this takes us back in some ways to the first half of our conversation uh, in a way. Um, when Ethiopia announced the GERD project under Meles, the, the big dam, it sparked, of course, a regional crisis by doing so, especially vis-a-vis Egypt, which you know remains unresolved. Egypt remains opposed to the dam. Uh, we've discussed this on the show before. Meanwhile, it's now making this push for sea access, and it's unclear which one of Abi's neighbors at the moment uh, Ethiopia actually has is is actually on good terms with. So even though Ethiopia is much larger and, and dwarfs uh, its neighbors population-wise, is it sustainable for Ethiopia to find itself basically at odds with so many of its neighbors, especially given the internal crises that you just talked about within Ethiopia itself? Well, it certainly adds to... Ethiopia's own uncertainties and instabilities, given that these neighbours themselves have populations, as you find throughout Africa, which bridge over, cross over the often entirely artificial borders formed in the late 19th century. There are Tigrinya speakers in Eritrea, and as as there are, of course, in Tigray. There are Somalis in Somalia and Somaliland, as there are in Ethiopia and in Kenya. There are Afars, again, across the border between Ethiopia and Eritrea. So domestic problems within Ethiopia very rapidly transform themselves into diplomatic problems. And the peculiar difficulty here is that Ethiopia, which has historically had a very skilled diplomatic corps, Abiy 
the simply way he makes policy on the hoof, with minimal consultation, especially with diplomatic um, experts, has made th these difficulties much harder to manage. The fragmented nature of the Horn of Africa gives you enemies, but it also gives you potential allies. So the alliance between Ethiopia and Kenya has been pretty solid all the way through from Kenyan independence back in 1963. But even that seems to be under threat at the moment because of the way in which the government under Abiy has broken away from African diplomatic norms, which previous Ethiopian governments of every stripe have been eager to maintain. The commitment to existing boundaries, the presence of Addis Ababa as the headquarters state of the African Union itself, the tacit agreements around which the regional organisation IGAD, the International Government Authority on Development, has been built. All of these have been flouted by the approach that Abi has taken with off-the-cuff annun announcements that may or may not be durable, but which, again, as is happening in domestic politics, reduce the level of trust in which the government in Addis Ababa is held. Now, you mentioned earlier the role of Gulf actors. There is a lot of speculation in the region, especially about the UAE as a major ally of Abiy's. How do you assess the role of the United Arab Emirates amid all of this? And how much do you think external actors in general really drive events in the region or, or don't? Regional actors within the Horn have been extremely adept at manipulating external intervening states, even states as important as the United States or the Soviet Union or China, let alone a comparatively small, though very wealthy, regional state such as UAE. And, broadly speaking, I would expect that pattern to continue. The horn is a nightmare for many of the states that have tried to intervene in it, which have been playing their own agendas and simply using external actors when they were found handy. So that Abiy, for instance, made considerable use of drones which had a, or appear to have had a decisive impact on the war in Tigray, gained from both Turkey and from the UAE. Where the UAE is concerned, there has been a significant development with the emergence of Dubai in particular as a major power in global shipping. Dubai Ports World, which is a conglomerate that manages ports throughout the world, not just in the region, has been a major actor. First of all, Dubai Ports World took over the management of the port of Djibouti, handling, of course, by far the greater part of Ethiopia's trade. Um, that arrangement broke down essentially because of a purely internal Djiboutian dispute, and that ended up with the Djiboutian government nationalising the port of Djibouti, flagrant breach of its legal agreements with Dubai, and setting up Djibouti as its own government-owned port. So the Dubai then switched its attention across the border into Berbera in Somaliland. Berbera, which used to be a very sleepy little port in which most of the ships were made of wood the last time I visited it, um, it was then developed into a modern container port, which it now is. So Berbera is in a position to challenge Djibouti for the critically important Ethiopian trade not only the port facilities themselves, but the 
lines of communication through to Ethiopia have been significantly improved and modernised, and and Babada is in a position now to take over, if not the whole of the Ethiopian trade, at any rate a significant chunk of it. That gives Dubai and the Emirates more generally a more lasting set of interests in the region than they previously had. We'll, we'll wait and see, but the involvement of the Gulf states in the Horn, again, like all the history of the Horn, has very long relations that go back to the very foundation of Islam in the 7th century of the Christian era, which was split apart by the colonial period, when colonial powers took over the whole of the coastline, and from then onwards we tended to think of this region just as part of Africa. But looking back a few more centuries, it's always been part of the Middle East, every bit as much as part of the African continent. And some of these very ancient patterns are now being reconstructed. So we're running out of time and need to wrap things up. Um, although we could certainly talk for, <laughs> we could certainly talk to you forever about many of these issues. Um, you've described Ethiopian foreign policy before as having its own form of manifest destiny of sorts. When you talk to diplomats working on this file, who see Ethiopia's quest for sea access and see only options, whether in Eritrea or in Somaliland, that obviously, of course, look destabilizing, who see only limited and bad options. Do you have any recommendations for them, ideas? Well, my instinctive response to diplomats from outside the region is stay clear. Don't get too involved. This is a region with its own conflicts, driven by its own participants, especially the heads of its various states. And it can be very dangerous for outsiders to get too heavily dragged into it. A certain measure of detachment is needed. It's a region, too, with a very profound sense of its own identities, its own histories, its own manifest destinies, as you rightly put it, particularly on the Ethiopian side, but also on the Somali side, for instance, the manifest destiny of all Somalis to be united under a single government has never been achieved. It probably never will be achieved. But a sense of Somali identity and across the frontier, even a sense of Oromo identity, are now very much part of the of the mix. So I'm deeply worried about where it may be going. I certainly couldn't come up with any suggestions to give to outsiders, no matter how well-meaning, as to how they should deal with it. So don't get sucked in. Keep a wary distance. There may be points at which you can make a relatively benign difference, but it is also an area in which outside powers have been particularly notable for the supply of weapons, killing very number, large numbers of the domestic populations of those areas. So be wary. Stay clear. That's what I answer. Just one more quick follow-up. Um, if you were if you were to bet on whether or not this Ethiopia Somaliland deal will will actually manage to become anything uh, in practice and concrete terms to be actualized, which way would you guess? Um, my guess would be that it'll all fall apart because most arrangements fall apart in this region. If you're betting on certainties, you're going to be out of luck or even betting on a long positive series of developments. The key thing to resolving the problems of the region has to be an effective political settlement in Ethiopia itself. And that looks to be a long way away. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Clapham, for finding the time for us, um, making your way to <laughs> the studio in London uh, to, to, to speak with us again. We, we, we really appreciate it. I know our listeners do as well. Well, as you will gather, those of us who've been working on this region for a fair time become obsessed with it. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. Our producers, as always, are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 